off the cuff One ain't my soul, just ain't enough Get a little laughter and an interview too It's maybe the best thing you can do Hello everybody, we're back with Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Episodes Today, we're a continuation of episode one. This is going to be part two with Michael O'Keefe. We left you off. Michael O'Keefe has a triple murder in the confines of the 8-3 precinct. And the, the triple murder has, was done by arson. And he had to do a little correcting of the investigation before he got there. The fire marshal didn't deem this fire suspicious. But Mike knew upon arrival from his training that this was definitely an arson and not just a run-of-the-mill everyday fire. Uh, he did a few different uh, investigative techniques. He, get, he didn't get much help in the beginning on this case. And he, he had to determine what was going on. One of the things he did was he got some video from the fire department's public information department so he could determine who was out on the street, what people had said to uh, some of the uh, investigators, some of the media, and he took it from there, and he was able to identify a couple of people. I'm going to let Mike uh, tell the rest of the story. Mike, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Uh, doing very well, Bill. Happy to be back. All right, great. People are looking forward to a uh, continuation of this case. Yeah, well, it was an interesting one, that's for sure. So I think we left off. I had yet to speak to uh, the girl, Jessica Santiago, who was uh, the intended target of this crime, or we had believed, based upon uh, the domestic incident report that she filed, that she was the uh, intended target. And when I say we, because I was the only one in the police department working on it at this time, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> I had the fire marshals uh, helping me out but uh, this is basically, this is in my lap. This is my case. And finally, two. Mike, just uh, people don't understand in a real busy precinct, uh, you, you're left with very little resources sometimes. And sometimes yeah, well, in this case, it, it wasn't just busy. It was a, a perfect storm it hit the night this fire took place. We had a, uh, a hate crime related murder. Uh, we had, and the very same night, we had a gang assassination. So what you had were all sorts of outside uh, agents, well, outside squads coming in to assist with those two murders. And nobody knew this was, uh, this was even a crime until I got into work and explained to the lieutenant that, no, that this was not an accident. Somebody intended to hurt these people. I'm, I'm sure the lieutenant didn't want a triple murder on top of all the other mayhem that was going on at the time. Uh, as I recall, what he said was, you're fucking killing me, O'Keefe. <laughs> That's the police. But, right? but he had faith in me, and he let me run with it and get, uh, I got some experts from the fire department down to reclassify it. And uh, while we didn't have any homicides on it yet, we knew it was just a matter of time until, based upon what the doctors were telling me, uh, before these people expired. They weren't in good health to begin with. And this, the burning and the smoke inhalation is just, it was just, they were on death watch. Right. Uh, but until it became a homicide, I wasn't getting any outside help. 
before it becomes uh, before it became a homicide case, I actually tracked down the girl Jessica Santiago, and she confirmed she had aborted this guy Cuco's. Um, and Cuco, by the way, is Spanish for ugly little bird. But uh, <laughs> I love it. She I had aborted Cuco's days. child. Yeah. Two days before the fire was set. Uh -huh. Um. But she wasn't she wasn't forthcoming uh, with anything else. She didn't want to. She did. She she denied that uh, this had anything to do with it. That she didn't think he had set the fire. Right. But then she admitted to me that the victim's son, uh, who uh, in, in the in in my novel I uh, I call him Miguel, uh, also known as Bless, big time drug dealer in the area, and. Uh, he told everyone not to talk to the police that he was going to take care of it himself. So, which, you know, I've heard that countless times on these, on these uh, homicides and they never do. Right. So it's a matter of wearing them down. So they'll let us do our job. So I realized, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to convince this guy to lift the embargo on information, but I can't find him and he's not returning his call. On January 12th and the 13th, uh, my victims basically die one after another. So now it becomes uh, homicide. I think it was homicide three, four, and five. And this is in January. Mm -hmm. I don't think the uh, 8-3 gets that many in a year anymore. Yeah. But um, once that occurs, now I get Detective Georgie Farback from uh, Brooklyn North Homicide. And his entire team come in and they're working with me on this case. And we go back out and we start hitting things. Uh, I had intended to go to the wake the night of the 13th, but I wasn't able to get there because uh, I actually finally got some leverage on uh, on Bungie, the, uh, the drug dealer who uh, originally told me to go fuck myself. Mike, can I stop you there for one second? Sure. Just for our listeners, uh, sometimes a, a detective... Uh, goes to the wake of uh, the deceased because the family uh, usually has their ears to the street and they can provide tremendous information uh, to the detective. So besides the fact that the detective wants to show the family that he's mourning with them, um, you can get great information sometimes at a wake. So I just want to explain that to our listeners. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's actually a common practice. It's, uh, it also helps the detective. Because as a homicide investigator, basically we speak for the dead, yes. the victim. We're, we're going to have the last say on how this person met their end and who they were in life. And what's nice about actually going to the wake and seeing the people that love them, it humanizes them. And they become, they be, they become a person to you. Yes. In a three-dimensional, actual you know, you, you, you get an empathetic understanding of who they are and you can relate to them and the, and the case becomes personal. Where, I mean, you see in TV shows, these, these detectives, uh, you gotta keep it impersonal. It's gotta be professional. Now that's bullshit. We're talking about murder. Right. It's gotta mean something to you. And by going to the wake and meeting the family, oftentimes that'll do the trick. At least now you know who you're working for. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to attend the wake because 
I had a break in the case with respect to a uh, possible witness. And it was, uh, was the drug dealer Bungie. Uh, however, the fire marshals, uh, just give you their first names, Tommy and Dan. Uh, they were able to go to the wake on my behalf and they explained to the family, listen, O'Keefe really wanted to be here. Uh, he's very sorry for your loss. He's working very hard on the case. Uh, he would love to sit down and talk to you, but he got a break in the case and he has to run with that, which probably was a surprise to Miguel because he thought he had told everyone not to talk to me. Right. But the mere fact uh, that the marshals were there and they extended my, uh, my sympathies started to bring him around. Um, ultimately, what, what put it over the top was the fact that I was uh, pretty much all over Wilson Avenue like a horde of locusts and nobody was selling a gram of drugs. And basically, I'm not going away. And they all understood this. And, so you're, uh, and you're, putting, you're putting some heat on the neighborhood so they can know yeah, I, I was Yeah, I was all over them like a fungus. They wanted me gone in the worst way. Right. Um, which, you know, it's my winning personality, I think. <laughs> but so the leverage I get on Bungie is just by following him around. I follow him into a crack house on Putnam Avenue. And, um, uh, when myself and Georgie Farback go up onto the second floor in the uh, shooting gallery, smoke house, whatever you want to call it, uh, there is Bungie getting serviced by a crack prostitute. <laughs> and he's getting high himself. And there's drugs all over the place. Right. So I said, uh, listen, you told me to go fuck myself yesterday. Do you still want me to do that? Because right now, you could probably go back to jail for the rest of your life just with what you're sitting around. Never mind a crack pipe in your head. So now he wants to talk. And uh, we bring him into the squad. And what he tells us is one of his associates, who uh, I believe I identify him as Tranquilo in the book, uh -huh. was outside of his house the morning of the fire, waiting for him to talk to him. Probably there was going to be money or drugs transacted between them because they were partners on, on the spots on Wilson Avenue. But while he's sitting there, he sees Kuko, who he knows from the neighborhood, come down the block, make the right turn on Wilson, and duck into the, uh, in, into the building. And a minute or so later, he comes out, the building's already in flames. And he runs down further down Wilson before he makes the right uh, on Hancock to head up to uh, Knickerbocker Avenue. Now, he's compromised. I know this drug dealer. Uh, he was a complainant, uh, actually a victim of mine, where he got beaten up by two of his workers. Uh-huh. Uh, they split his head open. They put him in hospital, almost killed him. But he didn't want to cooperate with the police on that one. And I pretty much had to make myself a nuisance in his life to get him to cooperate before I locked up the guys that, uh, that brained him. Uh, in this case, now I realized uh, he wasn't going to do anything out of civic duty. He wasn't going to do anything uh, out of uh, any personal animus on his part. I just kind of had to shut, shut down his business to get him to cooperate. Uh, easily enough, 
I'm already doing that on Wilson Anvil. So, uh, did you bring in uh, uh, narcotics to help you out with that? Uh, it was a basically, yes, I did. I enlisted them, but it was a phone call, and it turns out they had a case going anyway over there. So I said, well, let's. What do you say we do some some low level buy and bust, and I'll start talking to people. They might be eyewitnesses. Didn't get a witness out of that. You know, oftentimes that's an effective uh, technique, but in this case. There were limited witnesses to this because of the time that it went down. <clears throat> and uh, I finally get my hands on uh, on this guy, uh, Tranquilo, and he's telling me, yeah, I was sitting outside the uh, outside the uh, Bungie's house. And then I went over and I, and I saw what I saw. And then I went over to East New York to one of my girlfriends to stay, stay the night. Now, the district attorney, when they find out, okay, this is the second witness, and he's compromised as well, he said, we, got hot, we, we can't hang our case on a drug dealer because there might be – defense is definitely going to say there was a business problem between these two people, and he's using this as an opportunity to get, to get at his rival, right. which irrespective of how ridiculous that was, it might have won with a jury. So I had to independently verify this guy Tranquilo's information and prove that he was there and prove that he could even see what he, what he, uh, what he said that he saw. Right. And the way that I did that, using uh, Taru, the telephony unit, I had them pull the tower hits from his cell phone. And basically what that means is every time that you're on a, on a mobile call, or at least back in 2003, you're on a mobile call, that signal is hitting off of a cell tower with a fixed physical location. And oftentimes the signal is hitting off of two towers or three towers simultaneously. Uh, if it's off of three towers, it's a home run because now you got triangulation. You can say within three feet where that guy was. I had him on at least two cell towers at each time, and we follow his progress up to the second, all the way up Cooper Avenue, up Cypress Hills uh, Street, down into East New York, ending uh, at where he, where he said that his girlfriend lived. So that was separate, uh, independent corroboration. It, uh, it tended to suggest that what he was telling us was true. DA still wasn't happy because we're talking about a kid that's on the spectrum, is one witness. And now we have a drug dealer who may or may not have an impetus having to do with business to, to say what he's saying. But you know, but sometimes, you know, Mike. Sometimes you can't <coughs> pick who your witnesses are. You're not going to get like a Wall Street stockbroker to be your witness at that location. You know? No, we actually in Brooklyn North we had a saying back then. We called it the Holy Trinity. <laughs> your uh, your witness today is next week's perp is the following week's victim. <laughs> So you yeah. got to treat them with respect. You also got to work fast because you don't know how long these people are going to be continue to walk on the right side of the grass. That's right. So, but, uh, yeah, so uh, Bungie gives me up Tranquilo. Um, and uh, now the next day, because now I have two witnesses that are, that are indicating uh, – pretty much making it uh, clear that no one else could have set this fire. Um, the following day, the floodgates open. 
Jessica comes back into the squad to see me. She brings her sister and her sister's boyfriend. And they lay everything out. There were threats previously. Uh, she says Kuko had been threatening her to the point of saying, if you abort my child, I'm going to burn that fucking house down. Right. The day that she actually had the abortion, he came back to the house to beg her again. And Jessica's sister laughed at him and said, she's down killing it right now. He flipped out and threatened to burn the house down again. And her boyfriend gave him a beating in the street. So now I have them as witnesses based, uh, based basically to corroborate the threats. What also I get from Jessica is where he had been living when she threw him out was uh, at a woman's house, called it his cousin, but it wasn't his cousin. There was more going on there. Uh, down at Flatbush. And supposedly, her son, 15-year-old son, had pertinent information about the case. Either where uh, Kuko where, uh, was or his motivations to do it, not necessarily that he was a witness. Right. But we end up going to find her. Uh, and the other thing is we want to be able to uh, pinpoint his whereabouts the day of the fire. And if she says, well, you know, he was out for the night, but then he came home the next day, which is exactly what she said. Well, now I know if he tells me I'm in Philadelphia, that alibi isn't working because I have him in Brooklyn and available to commit the crime. Sure. Which is an important element. Opportunity is an important element of proving a murder. Unfortunately, the new witness, and um, his nickname was Mir Dito, which, if you're familiar with Spanish, that means shithead. <laughs> so we're not doing real well with witnesses so far. These are all very flattering nicknames on these guys. What I find when I visit the house in Flatbush is it's a crack den. Mom is a crackhead. And Mir Dito probably has HD, uh, ADD. And uh, he's a bedwetter. And uh, he has mood swings between threatening to kill us, myself and George, and breaking down crying and, and losing his mind because he's afraid that Kuko is going to come back and burn him. Because when we interview him, we finally get him calmed down. He admits prior to setting the fire, Kuko told him, that bitch kills my baby. I'm going to burn that house down and kill her. The day after the fire, Mirdito hears about the, the fire. He gets, I don't know, gets a phone call from a friend. Whatever, word gets to him. And he actually confronts Kuko and says, did you have anything to do with that fire? And Kuko gets right in his grill and tells him, if you say anything, yeah, I set that fire. And if you say anything to anybody, I'm going to fucking put you on fire. So, it, you know, we're getting motive now. We're doing good here. We're, we're putting our pieces together. Yeah. Um, the problem is there's very little physical evidence. The lab starts coming back now on the fire. And unfortunately, there's no evidence of gasoline. And the, the, the problem in an arson investigation with that is if there's definitely presence of accelerant, and there was, and it's not gasoline, then it was alcohol-based. 
Now, the problem with an alcohol-based accelerant is almost everything that's flammable is alcohol-based if it's not gasoline, and it doesn't leave the signature at the scene that gasoline does. The nice thing about gasoline, nice, when it's used as an accelerant is in the refining process, each, and, and it's individual to each brand of gasoline. The chemicals, the trace chemicals that are left behind because gasoline is very dirty, you can actually pinpoint not only what company produced that gasoline, but you can check back through them and they'll tell you where they distributed it in the area. And you might be able to find out where your murderer got his accelerant. Right. The problem with alcohol-based is it could be anything. It could be lighter fluid. It could be liquor. It could be uh, kerosene. It could be uh, a can of Lysol for that matter. So it's going to be real difficult because all of these things are typically sold in, in a bodega. Right. Every bodega in Brooklyn sells it. So with respect to trying to find where he might have uh, purchased the accelerant, they probably weren't going to get that. Uh, and, and we never did. We never did find it. Uh, 